Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Responsible children, yeah. things like that. <laughs> oh, well said. And I think there's a tendency to sentimentalize and romanticize that life. It was hard, you know. In hunter-gatherer cultures that we've studied, scholars have studied, the infant mortality rate, or really up to age six, roughly five out of six babies die before their sixth birthday. Our son was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck three times. You know. 50 years ago, 500 years ago for sure, that would have been a bad event for at least one, if not two people. You know? So yeah, I think it's tempting to do that. But if you look at, um, on the other hand, many hunter-gatherers, it seems to take them about four hours a day to literally take care of all their bodily needs. There's some exceptions to that, but generally that's a loose figure, a rough figure. The rest of the time, what are they doing? They're hanging out. They're chilling, making love. They're just t telling stories. They're gossiping, right? You look at primates. You look at a lot of what they do. Primate bands, we're primates too, of course, but other primates, you know, our cousin, the other great apes, like the orangutans or the chimpanzees, the bonobos, the gorillas, and so forth. Most of the time, they're kind of hanging out, right? And so I, I think that uh, while on the one hand, it's important to not romanticize the past, on the other hand, I think it's useful to appreciate that while... Modern life gives us things like pain control and in many cultures, at least happily, the opportunity for the rule of law under many conditions and various other kinds of benefits. I'm a fan of refrigeration and ESPN and, you know, ibuprofen. I'm a fan and all that. Um, that said, on the other hand, people are very stressed. And one of the takeaways for me from what I've learned about the territory of evolutionary neuropsychology is to have a very new appreciation for the slow grinding accumulation 
of negative experiences, particularly needless ones. I'll talk momentarily about a framework for me that I return to again and again about the three ways to engage the mind. I'm not talking about um, being Mr. Fix-It or Ms. Fix-It inside the head all the time, and I'm not talking about denying the negative or uh, you know, having a pie-in-the-sky kind of orientation. I think cultivation has a place in practice. It's not the whole of practice. But one of the things that has come to me from doing this work is do not underestimate the power of the dark side of the force. You know, Do not underestimate the impact. I'll talk in a moment about the negativity bias and how rapidly uh, we learn from negative experiences. Okay. Anybody else? A couple more in the front row? Great. Hi, um, I'm Priyal. And uh, you mentioned uh, negativity bias is in comparison to I guess, positive experiences. Uh, it resonates a lot more significantly. So when you have traumatic events, like you mentioned in hunter-gathered societies, yeah. the losing of um, a child in the first six years, what does the brain look like if you have great experiential positive experiences? Mm. Does that, on the flip side, kind of create neural substrates, or does that speed up um, the, uh, I guess, the, the wire of the brain in a certain way? And is that also representative of going to the red zone because it is also out of, you know, uh, because it's so impactful, even though it's positive? I'm not totally sh I think I get your question. Maybe, why don't I respond this way and see if it's on target, okay? Right? And I'm going to use an analogy that, of course, came to me on my way to a Buddhist Geeks conference to liken the brain to the Internet. So imagine if the Internet had a negativity bias. What that would mean is that, first of all, as we were broadly to find bad news on the Internet, you know, like Kim Kardashian updates. No, I'm just making that up. But, you know, like disasters, horrible things, you know, just, just anger, violence, terrible imagery, ugh, bad news, okay? What if, the, what if that actually changed the structure of the Internet such that those negative, that negative information, those websites, if you will, those pages, sucked traffic, got more traffic, they, in a strange attractor kind of way, all right? And what if that negative information moving through the internet actually changed the internet broadly so it became increasingly affected by negative news? While simultaneously in the internet worldwide, you know, altogether, um, while simultaneously uh, good news, useful information, pragmatically useful information, let alone things that are enjoyable, or aesthetically beautiful, let's say, did not, by its nature, tend to get much traffic, right? What would we have over time? And that's, that's the brain that we have. For example, if you take equally intense stimuli to the brain, one is pleasant, the other is unpleasant, going to the Vedanas, or what's called in psychology, the hedonic tones of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. As a sidebar, I wonder sometimes if a fourth Vedana is emerging, uh, for lack of a better word, call it heartfelt you know, that tends to incline us. Because, you know, the unpleasant Vedna tends to activate the avoiding system of the brain. A pleasant Vedna's or feeling tones or uh, hedonic tones tend to activate the approaching system of the brain. And I wonder if there's emerging in us in terms of evolution, uh, a more modern, if you will, over the last million or so years, certainly 100,000 or 200,000 years, a heartfelt 
Vedna that tends to activate the attaching system of the brain, just as a sidebar, okay? So equally, but keeping it simple, right? Um, carrots and sticks, right? Pleasant, unpleasant. Equally intense stimuli, pleasant, unpleasant, uh, the brain will activate more to the unpleasant. Two, negative experiences have, as it were, dedicated pathways, and they, become, they move more rapidly into neural structure, which means experientially we learn them quicker. Pain is more remembered than pleasure in terms of shaping behavior. We learn faster from pain than from pleasure. Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist who won a Nobel Prize for economics on his work on loss aversion or prospect theory, showed that most people will work a lot harder to avoid a loss than to, than to get an equivalent gain. Uh, in couples, classically, uh, you know, uh, um, it usually takes about five positive interactions to balance one negative one. Long-lasting couples usually must have at least a five-to-one ratio of positive interactions to one negative interaction, you know, as an ongoing kind of average over, over time. Or you think about um, learned helplessness, how vulnerable we are to learning a sense of futility, entrapment, and defeat. You can train dogs and who have a motivational uh, system very much like our own. You can train, train dogs and even humans into a sense of defeat very quickly. Four, five, half a dozen trials. They're depressed and they are defeated. They just give up. And then it takes many dozens of trials to help that dog and humans in different kinds of studies that pass human subjects review, um, you know, to actually learn again some sense of confidence. So again, we have a brain that's very vulnerable in that way. Now, the interesting thing, and this gets me jazzed up, and you know, that's where we're gonna go momentarily, is that on the one hand, we have a brain that is very rapidly sensitized to the negative. It isn't just that it learns negative quickly, which it does. It learns negative faster than positive. It's that over time, it gets better and better at learning negative. It gets better and better at converting momentary negative mental states to lasting neural negative traits. On the other hand, new research just beginning is starting to show that repeated cultivation and use of, and especially as I'll get to momentarily, the conversion of fleeting uh, positive experiences to lasting neural structure could actually sensitize the brain in the other direction could actually turn this brain increasingly into becoming Velcro for the good, not just Velcro for the bad. That's a second order kind of effect. That's a meta effect, and that really interests me a lot. So that does seem to me to go to what you're getting at, if I get it right. Yeah, that's exactly okay. what yeah, And I'll stick around, by the way, afterward. Very happy to. And I should mention, just because of the slide chaos, which I'm so glad it happened. This is really good. Um, <laughs> But my, on my website, uh, you can go there, sonrecanson.net. Tons of this stuff is freely offered. And there's a lot of backup material and the science of what I'm doing here and all the rest of that. And you're very welcome to use that material and you know, share with others freely how you like. You. Okay, yeah. Maybe one more person and then I'll keep going. We'll do something experiential real soon. Great, thanks. Why do you think that's true? Well, first, when she's, 
if I may, when you, she, uh, I can't read your name there, but anyway, it talks about LTP, long-term potentiation. It really is, it's the kind of neural, neurologization of learning, right? And you're saying, right, that you have a notion that meditation or contemplative practice, let's say, actually increasingly helps the brain learn faster and deeper and better, correct? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Can you say why you think that? Um, I don't know, just personal experience yeah. and yeah. Uh, kind of that paradigm shift that you have when yeah. you do have an active meditation practice yeah. versus when you kind of fall off the wagon and you think everybody right. gets there. Yeah. And whenever you're in that meditation practice, you have this positive, more positive outlook, you stop having that negative bias as much and your yeah. brain starts to shift. So I thinking that this might be where you're going with the cultivation. Right. But uh, I'm interested in brain chemistry and that kind of stuff. Okay, great. So, yeah. so that's just personal notion, personal hunch. Oh, that's great. Well, I'll try to speak to that then. So people usually talk about long-term potentiation at the synaptic level. So I'm, I'm going to do it, I'm going to respond both at the micro level and kind of the macro level, okay? So first of all, research does show uh, that meditation or related close cousins, like mindfulness training in general, broadly defined, um, actually have tremendous benefits for both physical health as well as psychological health. I think that if Merck or Pfizer could patent meditation in terms of its research-proven benefits compared to many other medical treatments, we'd be seeing ads for meditation every night on TV, not so much Prozac, you know, more mantra work or something like that, right? So that's on the one hand, and I think that's really true. And when your mind is calmer, you're more able to learn, you're less jacked up. Second, you get more control over your attention, which is this combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner. You know, attention illuminates what it rests upon and then sucks it into your brain. Because as I said earlier, uh, neurons that fire together wire together, especially in the field of focused attention. But most of us don't have very good control over that spotlight. So at the macro level, we become better able to learn, I think very much to your point. And then at the micro level, what's really kind of neat is that um, what accelerates synaptic formation, which is kind of the wiring deep down, that's the physical basis of learning, hopefully positive learning or negative learning. One thing that facilitates that is dopamine, which tracks reward. So the more that in our contemplative practice, we tend to activate uh, positive emotional states, even if they're subtle, like tranquility is a fairly subtle, positive emotional state, but if it pervades the mind, if we fully give over to it, it's just about all that's going on. It perplexed me for a while as to why the Buddha and his contemporaries, who were perfectly prepared to do incredibly intense ascetic practice, why would two of the five jhana factors, the jhanas constitute, the four form jhanas, as you probably know, constitute the right concentration or wise concentration element of the Noble Eightfold Path? These non-ordinary, profound, you're no longer in Kansas any longer, you know, if you've ever experienced them, uh, states of absorption. Why traditionally would the five jhana, jhana factors consist of applied attention, sustained attention, rapture or bliss, and joy, as well as unification of consciousness. Why would 40%, two out of five, right, have to do with intense positive emotion? And one reason for that, I think, is because when you're in that state, you're getting a lot of dopamine, 
you're getting a lot of norepinephrine, another neurotransmitter that's very involved in kind of states of alertness, brightening of the mind, as they say in Tibet. Those two neurotransmitters really promote synaptic formation, as well as help the mind stay steady for a variety of other kinds of reasons. So I think even at the synaptic level, way down in the basement, if you will, uh, of learning and growth and change and transformation, contemplative practice could really help. And you probably caught my nod, you know, my bow in the direction of positive emotion. And so maybe I'll, I'll go there and segue fairly quickly into teaching some methods that I think are very useful for turning fleeting mental states into lasting neural traits that we really care about. Okay? So kind of move on. All right, so as a framework, as I said earlier, it's been very useful for me to appreciate um, that I think there are just three ways to engage the mind. We can transcend the mind altogether, but then we're out of the natural frame. Inside the natural frame, we can witness the mind. We can feel the feelings, experience the experience, uh, hold our sorrows in a large open space of awareness, uh, step back, observing ego in the psychology term, uh, get out of the movie and witness it instead from 20 rows back. That's one way to engage the mind. It's fantastic. I think it's the most important of the three. It's absolutely fundamental. But is that all that we need to do? There's also the wise effort or right effort aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, that part of practice, which is about reducing the negatives in the mind and growing the positives. In effect, if the mind were like a garden, we could witness the garden, we could pull weeds, or we could plant flowers, right? Or in six words, let be, let go, let in. So it's in this frame now that I want to talk about what promotes letting in. What does actually, based on science, what does accelerate um, our positive learning, our cultivation of wholesome qualities of mind and heart? Right? Well, it's interesting. See, negative experiences, negative mental states, fleeting patterns of mental neural activity, right, which haven't yet built structure, negatively charged mental neural co-arising states very quickly convert to traits. Once burned, twice shy, right? Never forget. We learn from our negative experiences. But meanwhile, positive experiences, unless they're million-dollar moments, really, really intense, you know, samadhi, bliss, or you want to marry me? You know, for these fantastic moments, right? Yes! Um, or whatever. But anyway, you know, unless it's that, Positive experiences use standard-issue memory systems. Well, standard-issue memory systems have short-term buffers, again, to simplify and summarize a lot of research, and material patterns of information need to be held in these short-term memory buffers for long enough, 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row, long enough to transfer to long-term storage, to start encoding in neural structure. That's great, but how often do we actually do that? How often do we actually stay with our fleeting, momentary, positive experiences more than a few seconds in a row? We might be having one positive experience after another, but the next one coming in to short-term buffers dislodges the current one before it can start sifting down into long-term storage. That means that many, many positive experiences wash through the brain like water through a sieve, while negative ones are caught each time. It's been deeply humbling to me personally when I, as a longtime therapist and teacher in various kinds of venues and settings and traditions, it's been humbling for me to realize how many of the hard-won, useful mental states that people were having, or in fact I was having, 
made no difference in the brain. They were good in the moment, but they had no lasting value because they didn't convert to structure. There was no learning. Structure equals learning. No, no structure, no learning, no real change, which flattens the course of person's learning curve through life, is disheartening, and slows down the fruits of our efforts, and continues, you know, perpetuates suffering and harm. What are the factors that are known? Lots of research on learning. What are the factors that are known to accelerate the conversion of mental states to neural traits? There are five major factors. These are not the only, there are probably a couple more, but these are the ones where they have a lot of effect. One is duration. We gotta stay with it. The longer the better. Second factor is intensity. The more intense the experience, the more of a neural trace it's likely to leave behind. Multimodality, that's the third factor. Feeling it in the body, uh, really sensing it here, tracking the emotion of it, moving the idea down into a felt sense, uh, acting it out, moving the body to represent that posture a little bit, feeling it in the face, uh, doing it in behavior, that deepens memory traces. Fourth factor, novelty. The brain is a novelty detector. It's constantly looking for what's new, what's, what's, you know, what's fresh, and what's the news, right? Um, so helping ourselves notice what's fresh in our experience, again, will accelerate the conversion to neural structure. I think that's another reason why meditation is very helpful in that regard, because it helps us appreciate that each breath is a fresh breath, right? And then the fifth major factor is, is personal relevance, salience. Why should I care, right? Why does this matter to me? So the more that we can bring one or more of these factors, particularly duration, helping it last 10, 20 seconds in a row, one or two dozen seconds in a row, if not longer, and then ideally adding the intensity to it, feeling it in the body, seeing what's fresh about it, and or personal relevance, that will increase memory traces. And that, for me, takes us to what I think of as the four fundamental steps of taking in the good, uh, which I use uh, the acronym HEAL, H-E-A-L, to summarize. So I'm going to teach it to you, and then we're going to do it, okay? All right. Enough blather, more feelings, good. All right, so first step, we have to activate the positive state in the first place, usually because we notice we're already having a positive experience, right? I'm surviving the loss of my slides. <laughs> Relief is highly underrated, trust me, it's high, you know, as a useful positive experience. Uh, maybe we accomplish something. Uh, that's a nice positive experience. On the zero to 10 intensity scale, most positive experiences are ones and twos, or point fours, right? Occasionally there's a six or a seven that comes rolling along. Most of them are pretty, pretty lightweight, but they're real, they count, okay? So in the first step, we have, H for have, a positive experience, right? Usually because we notice we're having it, Sometimes we create it. We might think of something we're grateful for, or we might deliberately call up compassion or loving kindness, or we might be in a tough situation at work or in life or starting a business, uh, things are you know, challenging. We pull up some sense of determination. We create a positive experience. Either way, we're having it in the first place. We've activated it. Then we move into the second, third, and fourth steps where we install this activated useful mental state into neural structure. And we only do this a handful of times each day. It's not like we become preoccupied with this. But, you know, half a dozen, pardon me, um, half a dozen times a day, roughly, 
half a minute or less, that's less than five minutes a day, you can really, really gradually change your brain for the better. Okay? So the second step, we enrich the experience. E for enrich. Right? We help it last, we protect it, we make sanctuary for it in our minds. In the moment, 10, 20, 30 seconds straight, it's a kind of absorption practice. We give ourselves over to it. There's a kind of yielding. We let it, we let it be here in us. We help ourselves have it. We don't push it away. What's interesting, when you start doing this kind of practice, you bump into all these blocks to letting yourself actually receive a positive experience uh, in a way that involves a kind of befriending of oneself that's very heartfelt. So that's the enriching phase. And then in the third step, we absorb it, A for absorb. We prime memory systems, we make them more receptive, so they're more inclined to convert to structure by intending and sensing that the experience is coming in. Some people, like me, do this visually. I imagine like an experience sifting down into me like golden, you know, what was that, uh, the golden compass, the golden dust, you know, Pullman's great books are coming in, or soothing balm, or with children, I'll do this a lot with kids because I see kids, um, my practice sometimes, a jewel in the treasure chest of the heart, or maybe you just know it's going into you. You know, bottom line, if you're enriching the experience 10, 20 seconds straight, it will convert to neural structure. It can't help but do that. Neurons that fire together wire together, but we can turbocharge that process. We can accelerate our learning curve by intending and sensing that it's sinking in. Those are the three core steps of taking the good, purely positively focused. The optional fourth step is to link. That gives us H-E-A-L, to link, where we're holding both positive and negative material in awareness at once. We're helping the positive material be more prominent, so it gradually associates into the negative material so that when the negative material reconsolidates in a very dynamic and therefore vulnerable to intervention kind of process, when the negative material reconsolidates back into neural structure, it takes some of those positive associations with it. And then when we call it up again, or it just reactivates as a kind of mood or an inclination or an assumption or an expectation, when it activates again, it tends to bring some of those positive associations with it. You want to try it? Yeah. Let's just try it. Okay. So do it in your own way, however you like. It's a little artificial, but we'll see how this goes. All right. So remember those three systems, right? Lizard, mouse, monkey. We're going to do one for each. So on cue, right? Notice a really interesting truth that is a truth most of the time that you're actually all right right now. In other words, see if you can help yourself in the first step to have a positive experience of actually not being about to die. <laughs> You're actually all right. Moment to moment, the body is telling the brain all is well. In most moments. Sometimes you're not all right right now. There have been times I haven't been all right right now. But mostly we are all right right now. And I'm talking about not wasting that experience. Turning it into neural structure. So you could notice you're all right right now. You could keep your eyes open or closed. And on the basis of that, you could sense an underlying peace, a fundamental bodily reinforced sense of basic safety so that you can relax any unnecessary guarding or bracing and experience a growing tranquility one of the seven factors of awakening. So I'll be quiet for about 
20 seconds or so as you explore what it's like to keep giving yourself over to a deepening sense of peacefulness, a relaxing, a coming home to a basic peace. As you do this, let it sink into your body. Notice what it's like to let yourself have and receive this experience. Maybe even be a little changed by it. Good. And then in the second step of this little practice here, this experiment. Let's explore now the approaching reward system by seeing if you can locate some basic sense of gladness or gratitude. Perhaps thinking of something that makes you feel happy. And seeing if you can help yourself experience a kind of falling away of grasping. So there's less and less basis, increasingly no real basis, for any kind of disturbance about not having enough. And instead, I'll be quiet again, opening to whatever is real for you as an underlying well-being and a growing coming home to contentment. Letting this experience sink into you as you sink into it. And then in the third step, opening to, in terms of the attaching system, some sense of feeling cared about. Bringing to mind others doesn't need to be a perfect relationship that give you a feeling of being included or that you're seen or appreciated or liked and loved. Could be people in your life today or your past, could be a pet, could be a friend, maybe putting a hand on the heart or on your cheek as if the most loving being in the universe were wishing you well. Perhaps thinking of someone who you know loves you. What's it like to feel loved? Letting these feelings sink in, 
Move down into your body, filling the hole in your heart. If your mind wanders, that's fine. You can bring it back. Also being aware of your own caring for others. Perhaps thinking of someone that you naturally feel compassion for or kindness, wish them well. Coming home to, resting in a sense of love. Love flowing in, love flowing out. Love sinking into you as you sink into it. Altogether, based on peace, contentment, and love, coming home to the green zone. Little basis, little deficit or disturbance, little basis or no basis at all for any kind of craving. Letting this state of mind really sink in. And then coming back, and I'll say a few more words about this and wrap up. And you're very welcome, of course, to continue to experience some basic sense, however it was for you, including subtle or mild, some basic sense of peace, contentment, and love. The interesting thing is that what we just did over a few minutes is a fairly structured kind of practice. But most of the time, when we take in the good, most of the time when we convert fleeting positive states to lasting neural traits, it's in the flow of life, just in the middle of everyday living. It's not some kind of special thing, but instead of wasting these useful moments, we help them land. We help them sink in on the basis of which we build up more inner strengths, including positive feelings, positive mood, and we have more capacities, more, ins more inside ourselves, to offer to other people as our own cup runneth over. It's interesting that they say in Tibet, take the fruit as the path. In other words, if the fruit of a really good life certainly at least includes, broadly defined, qualities of inner peace, a sense of reward and fulfillment, contentment, and qualities of feeling loved and loving, that's the aim of a good life. Because of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, every time we take in the good of these experiences, every time we help ourselves experience that our core needs, in this moment at least, are fundamentally being met, we build up the neural substrates of the responsive mode. In effect, using like a strange attractor model, we deepen the divot, if you will, of the green zone, the responsive mode. Or to use a different metaphor, it's as if the keel of a sailboat. Uh, we deepen the keel of our personal sailboat in the water as we absorb again and again, as we take in again and again, 
the fundamental sense of core needs being met so that as the worldly winds blow, increasingly they don't knock our boat over because our keel has gotten a lot deeper. Or if that something hits us hard, we recover a lot more quickly. And for me, that's a beautiful path of practice. It's in the larger frame in which we also witness our pain when it's there without trying to fix it immediately. When it feels right, we move into releasing it. We let it go. We pull that weed, if you will. We abandon that difficult mind state. And then when it feels appropriate as well, we replace what we've released. We plant some flowers in the space you know, left by the weeds we've pulled out. So it's in that context that we're speaking here. And yet, bit by bit, right, synapse by synapse, we can deepen that internal felt sense of needs met and therefore undo the underlying causes of craving, which is a fundamental cause of suffering and harm. I want to leave you with a quote from the Buddha from the Dhammapada. He says, think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. You know, as they also say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. The minutes, the drops, the synapses, that's what's within our sphere of influence. That's what we can actually make a difference uh, with regard to. And that's the great opportunity, I think, for ourselves, whether we draw upon technology to help ourselves or whether we do it through traditional means, to build up the good inside ourselves, to build up our own water pot so we have more and more to offer to other people. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.